Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're visiting with us tonight, thank you so much for being with us. It's an encouragement to have you, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It is great to see our young people back. It's easy to notice who they are. Uh, Just look for the bright red and those adults that helped along with the weekend. It was a wonderful weekend. We're thankful that our youth take advantage of such opportunities, and we're thankful that God gives us those opportunities. We truly are blessed. Uh, God has blessed us richly, and let's make sure that we use wisely all of the blessings that God gives us. Let's be good stewards. A part of that, you know I can't let a day go by without reminding you again. If you've not filled out your SOS, that's a good way to be a wise steward. Uh, it would really help us be organized. We're planning a work day right now. A couple of deacons will meet tonight and work on that. And they're just going to get out the SOSs that you guys have already turned in. And they're going to be contacting you about if you're available and willing to work in certain areas. And so, uh, please, that's the way it just works so well when it works like that. When you just pull off the database and they're the people that want to work. Uh, so if you haven't filled one out, be sure and be one of the ones that's saying, I want to work. Please let me be a part of it. And that would make things work best for the glory of God. That's, it's that simple, all to God's glory. We're going to continue a lesson tonight. We don't have time to go back and review heavily uh, where we begun this lesson, began this lesson two weeks ago. But I do want to remind you, you can listen to it online at our website. And also there are CDs and cassettes and DVDs available. And there's a place in the foyer there that you can sign up for those. And so if what we study tonight intrigues you and we have not, and you were not here two weeks ago on a Sunday night, uh, the first part of this lesson, uh, you can obtain that way. We're looking at this, if you wonder, hey, where are these questions come, coming from? There's been a list of questions submitted to me from one of our members that just had random questions about what about death and life after death and etc. And so we're just following, uh, pulling all these together and letting them fall under the headlines of, hey, questions you've asked. And here are more questions that you have asked about death. I will at least review the introduction of the lesson two weeks ago because I think we need that any time that we look at the idea of studying about death because the way we use it in a secular nature does not blend perfectly with the way that it's taught in the scriptures. And I'm not saying that we We ought to just stop using it of a secular nature. I'm not saying that, but I'm simply saying if that's the only understanding we have, we're going to miss some very important truths in the Scriptures. For example, as we look at this next slide, we see the question, what is death? If we looked it up in a dictionary, it would read something like this. The act of dying, that doesn't tell us a lot, but then we see termination of life. That is oftentimes the way death is defined from a secular use. And then we look at that and say... Wait a minute, when I read in the Scriptures, I don't find that it's the termination of life. It may be the end of life in this body, but I do not stop living. It goes back to that idea. Are you a body that just so happens to have a soul? Are you a soul that lives in a body at the present time? And that's what it comes down to. And so if we believe that we are a soul that for this moment is living in a body, when we die, that's only a separation. We do not cease to exist. Remember Jesus said in John 10 and 10, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He didn't say I've come that they might die and that they would cease to live. The Lord brings us eternal life. And so we have to take all of that and bring into this scope of the discussion of what is Death and what is life. We will review this next slide and then we're on to question number four. Here's some examples in the scriptures where we read of death. James 2 and 26, we read that the body without the spirit is dead. 
In Genesis 25 and verse 8, we read about Abraham breathed his last, and the, the King James would say, and gave up the ghost. The New King James says he breathed his last and died. But the idea is really very clear in the King James. He breathed his last and his soul separated from his body. He gave up his spirit, his soul is separated. And so therefore, that is death. That's why in Genesis 35 and 18, when, when Rachel died, it says, and her soul was departing, and then parentheses, for she died. And so we need to realize that as we're studying this tonight, we're asking questions because we want to know, what is it going to be like for me? What is it going to be like for you after we die? There's this separation of the spirit and the body. Again, I remind you, we can ask many more questions than what we can find answers. But still, we ought to study, and the things that are revealed to us, we should know those because it'd be a great benefit anytime we know the scriptures. So if you will turn with me to First Thessalonians the fourth chapter. First Thessalonians the fourth chapter, a great passage to study uh, as you contemplate and study over the topic of life after death. The fourth question that's been asked is what about those who have died in the Lord? Now, this is a wonderful passage to go to answer this question because that is exactly what they needed and wanted to know. I want you to keep in mind, those of Thessalonica, this is what we might want to call first-generation Christians. In other words, they didn't grow up hearing uh, the funeral services that you and I hear today. They didn't grow up hearing sermons from the time they were knee-high. As you remember from this morning's study, many of them grew up in idolatry. And so they had a lot of questions. Okay, well, how is it really? What about life after death? And here was the problem. They were waiting for the coming of the Lord, but they were watching some of their loved ones that were Christians die. And so then they begin to think, wait a minute, are they going to miss out? What about those that die in the Lord? Are they going to miss out? We're waiting on the Lord to come. If the Lord came right now, He would take us. What about these people that are dead? And so we can use this passage to learn a lot. Let's look as he says, uh, what about those who died in the Lord? Begin reading verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those that have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You see the point there. Those that are Christians when they die, yes, we shed tears. Yes, we experience deep grief. But it's not a hopeless grief. We do not grieve as those who have no hope because we realize that really the greatest grief is for us. When a Christian dies, our grief cannot be for them. And so we read on in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. Okay, now what was the question? What about those who have died in the Lord? Jesus is going to bring their souls back as He comes back. So that's one thing we can know. Now, two Sunday nights ago, we looked at this more in depth of what happens from another standpoint. Now let's read verse 16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now wait a minute, I thought the Lord was bringing back those that were that died in Him. He's bringing back the souls of those that died in Him. And then what is being resurrected first? The bodies of those that have died in the Lord will be resurrected first. And so from this we see some of the teaching about what happens to those that die in the Lord. Now, that naturally brings up another question. Okay, you said that those bodies will be the first to resurrect. What kind of body is going to resurrect? We're not trying to, to speak out of turn here or, or to be crude, but most 
immediately imagine corruption. And then that's the question. If the body is corrupted, what body is going to be raised? That was a very significant part of the fact that Jesus stayed in the grave only three days. And you remember David prophesied and Peter used that in his sermon in Acts the second chapter that his body shall not see corruption. You see, he wasn't going to stay in the grave long enough that his body would see corruption. But we know that when bodies do stay in the grave for, a very, uh, for any length of time, that they do see corruption. And so what body is going to raise? As we go now, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read a passage where as we go back in verse 12, these people were struggling with believing even if there was a resurrection. You can imagine some of the sarcastic questions that they would probably ask. Imagine, if you will, talking to someone that doesn't believe in a resurrection and then them say, oh, sure, what is going to come out of the grave? You believe a body's going to come out of the grave? What about those people that have been there for a hundred years? What's going to come out of the grave? You can imagine that kind of sarcasm. And so he answers this. Notice as we begin reading 35 how similar the question is here. In 35 it says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat, and some other grain. And for the next few verses, he elaborates upon that. But let's just build off this point alone for for this particular moment. If I took and and held a, a grain of corn, a kernel of corn before you, I said, now let's go and take this body of corn, this grain of corn, and let's bury it. And let's come back in a couple of weeks and let's see what body it is producing. That's the analogy he gives here. Grain, agriculture, horticulture. Would you come back in a few weeks and expect to see one kernel of corn just growing on top of the ground? Somebody says, of course not. What you're going to see in time is you're going to see this huge stalk that's that's taller than we are and it's going to have a lot of leaves and and it's going to have several ears of corn that's the point paul says let's go over this again the lord has never had a problem with burying one body and resurrecting another body that's what we see about this great resurrection let's read on about it let's skip down now to 42 So also is the resurrection. See, he likens it to agriculture. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Well, let's read more about this change. In other words, a corruptible body goes in the ground and it does just that. It begins to corrupt, to corrode, if you will. But then there's that great resurrection where we're given a new body that is immortal. Let's read verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Not everyone's going to die before the coming of Jesus. There will be a generation alive. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
Notice that. The dead's going to raise, and what's going to happen? Everyone, everyone is going to be changed. How long is this change going to happen? You can't measure the length of time. It's in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will, will sound, the shout will be given, and the graves are going to open, and a changed body will be resurrected. And so we read in verse 54, So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. You see, it'll be at this moment that as the old poet wrote, Death, thou shalt die. Never again will anyone else die. Never again will a soul separate from its body. And that's why the answer to this, and we don't have it on the screen, but in 55 where he says, O death, where is thy sting? O Hades, where is thy victory? In 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the victory over death, the reason that we can be given a new body, the reason that we can dwell with the Lord for eternity, the reason death shall die is because Christ is the victor. And we want to be on the side of Christ. Look with me, if you will, to 2 Thessalonians 1. Second, no, no, wait. No, I'm sorry. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4 again. 1 Thessalonians 4. And let's ask, let's move to question 6 now. Question 6. Where will we go if we are still alive when Jesus returns? The last question we address is if we had died in the Lord. Now the question is, what if Jesus comes during our lifetime? Where are we going to go there? We've already seen some of this. I want you to notice again, we're not going to read 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, 16, and 17, the whole thing again. We just read those verses. Uh, but we will scan over some things in 15. Notice that, that we who are alive, this is the underlined part on your screen, the middle of 15, that we who are alive and remain in the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And then in 16, we have the fact of Jesus coming again and the dead in Christ rise first. Notice 17, that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. In other words, with those that have died in the Lord. Now we're all going to be caught up together. They resurrect first, then we all are caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall be, shall always be with the Lord. Notice nowhere in the scriptures does it speak of Jesus coming back to this earth, which is a very common teaching among many religious parties today. That's not found in the scriptures. That's adding to the scriptures. What the scriptures say is that Jesus is going to come back in the clouds and then we are going to rise to him. Jesus isn't coming back to establish a kingdom on this earth. And we'll see other verses that strongly would teach against that false doctrine. So, the first thing is we answer this question, where will we go if we are still alive when Jesus comes? The first answer to that is we'll go in the clouds. We'll ascend into the clouds just as Jesus ascended. Now, notice we're going to do this with the changed bodies. You remember that that we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 and 51 where he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It doesn't matter if our body, our physical body is coming out of the grave or if we're in our soul, is in this physical body, at the time of Jesus' coming, all are going to be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, everyone will have an experience that change to be given a body that will dwell for an eternity. Now, let's go, if you will, still following up on this, to 2 Thessalonians 1. 2 Thessalonians 1. 
And let's read in verse 5. 2 Thessalonians 1, 5. Notice the eternal destruction that, that takes place here. This will be for those... I tell you what. Do me a favor. Put your finger there and we're going to come to that. To put this in the right order. My, my mind's thinking, no, that's not really the right order. Put your finger there. We're coming right back to it. Let's drop back to Matthew, the 25th chapter. We really need to cover this first because now we're in the air. We've ascended in. uh, We're in the clouds. Now let's see what happens in Matthew, the 25th chapter. Look with me, if you will. Matthew, the 25th chapter, and let's see what happens once we are in the clouds. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. This is Matthew 25, beginning at 31. Now listen to the introduction of this verse. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. So we have a picture here of Jesus coming again. We have a picture of, of the final day of judgment. The trumpet has sounded and the dead have been raised and all are before Him in the clouds. And here's what we read. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides His sheep from the goats. So we see there, when we ask the question, well, what about if we're alive when Jesus comes? Where are we going to go? The first thing, we're going to ascend. We're going to experience that change of body, but we're going to ascend up into the clouds. Then what is going to happen? Where are we going to be? We're going to be in judgment. We're going to be in that great and final day of judgment where if you can imagine looking over your shoulder each way, we're going to have surrounding us every soul that has ever lived. Can't imagine it, can you? Everyone that's ever lived, everybody that's alive today, everybody that lives until that time. You know, just today it would be over six billion people. Can you imagine how many people? All the nations are going to be there and gathered there. Now, when we read in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter and verse 24, as he divided, you notice there were going to be those on the right were the sheep, and then those, and they were saved. Those on the left were the goats, and they were lost. And now notice in 1 Corinthians 15 and 24, he says, Then comes the end. See, it's speaking about Jesus coming back. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom. Now, who is that? He's going to deliver all nations? No. He's going to deliver the kingdom. He's going to deliver the saved. Where? To God the Father. When He puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. But not everyone is going to be saved. Not everyone is going to be delivered to the Father. So let's see what the end of those that aren't delivered to the Father. Now let's go to 2 Thessalonians 1 and 5. We're picking up in the middle of a sentence Uh, to save a little time here, but what he's talking about in 2 Thessalonians 1, there were those that were being persecuted because they were Christians. Remember, we've studied about that out of Acts 17 the last two Sunday mornings. We've studied about it in 1 Thessalonians, how he commends them that even in their time of affliction, they received the word. And now in 2 Thessalonians, he's still talking about the fact that many people were persecuting them. They must have had really a difficult time with persecution. And so it's in the midst of this discussion of those persecuting Christians that we pick up in the middle of this sentence in verse 5. Which is manifest. In other words, all this persecution is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. How many times have we been mistreated and, uh, and we've said, where's God in this? See, those people were being mistreated. And now Paul writes by inspiration. He says, i tell you where God is. Wait to the final day of judgment. Here's what's going to happen. Since it is a righteous thing 
It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. God's going to count it a great act of righteousness to punish those individuals that have punished His cause on this earth. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. I know this is a little bit off subject to what we're studying tonight, but just let's make a quick application. It was a worthy cause to suffer for the cause of Christ, even if the only rest that these individuals were going to know was not while they were in this physical body. Friends, if the only thing we're living for is this physical body, we've missed the whole picture. If we had to live every day under persecution for the cause of Christ, it would be a great gain for us to suffer for the cause of Christ. Life is not about how comfortable can I be in this body. How many blessings can I enjoy in this body. Life in this body is about serving God so that we can dwell with Him for an eternity. And so let's read on about this punishment for those that are against the cause of Christ. In verse 8, well, let's finish up 7. To give... You who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. This is when He comes again, revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So what about those of us that are still alive? We'll be called up into the air to have that great and final day of judgment. He'll separate those that are on the right or saved. They'll be delivered to the Father, the kingdom. Those on the left will be condemned. They never obeyed the gospel. Remember this morning we talked about how important it was to receive the gospel? Not just to be at the place that it's being taught, but to let it change our lives to receive the gospel. It didn't say these people had never heard the gospel. It said they never obeyed the gospel. How important it is that we receive the gospel because the vengeance of God on the great and final day of judgment comes against those that will not obey the gospel. Let's sum all of this up in John the 5th chapter 28 and 29. And by the way, I don't mean the whole lesson. I mean this one point. Let's sum this up in, in John 5, 28. I could just hear you reaching for your songbook. All right. In John 5, 28 and 29, notice this summary of the, the two aspects of judgment. John 5, beginning at 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice. You see, that's talking about judgment. When the shout comes and the graves open, and and they're going to hear His voice. In other words, someone says, oh, they're dead. No, they're going to hear the voice of the Lord. They're going to raise. There's going to be a resurrection. Okay, what's going to happen on that end? Notice this summary. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. We all shall continue our existence. But there will be a judgment, which means divide. And it will be a great divide. Those that will be saved, the joy, the experience will be beyond description. Those that will be on the other side of the divide... The terror, the pain, and the disappointment would be beyond description. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, the seventh question, will the earth become like a paradise? 
There are some that believe and teach that, that the Lord is just going to kind of modify this earth and, and that this will be our new home and etc. But let's see what the Scriptures say. In Second Peter 3 and 10, we begin reading, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So we're talking about again when Jesus comes again. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? By the way, do you think the Lord ever uses the idea of destruction, condemnation, damnation to motivate righteous living? Notice how that was just tucked in the middle of a passage that's talking about the day of judgment. We need to be holy and godly in our conduct. Now let's go back to the end. Look at verse 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Did you see those descriptive terms? What's going to happen to the earth and the heavens, the sky and the universe? What's going to happen to the earth and the heavens? They're going to melt. They're going to be burned up. They're going to be dissolved. They're going to cease to exist. So therefore, it's a pretty clear answer that we're not going to have a paradise on this earth because the earth itself will not exist. When we're reminded of that, we're reminded how foolish it is when we put our priority on material things that will not exist. And that's why it's such a beautiful thing to be generous so that we store up treasures in heaven. Now, here's a real fair question. Question number eight. What is the new heaven and the new earth? Let's read that in verse 13. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here, the idea of a new heaven and a new earth is referring to a new dwelling place. But it can't be the same earth that has been dissolved, that has been burned up, that has melted away. Let me give you an example. What if I told you that my house was burned up, that it literally melted away, totally dissolved? And then I said to you, but now our house is so pretty and new. Would you then ask me, oh, so you still live in the same house? No, I just told you my house was totally destroyed. I now live in a new house. The earth is going to be destroyed, and so we will have a new dwelling place. A new earth, if you will. A new atmosphere. A new uh, heavens, if you will. And so, that's the problem when we try to take verse 13 and then go back and rewrite 10, 11, and 12. We always want all the verses to fit together. If we say something out of one verse that makes the other verses not true, we know that we've misunderstood the Scriptures. Along with this same point, turn with me to John, the 14th chapter. John, the 14th chapter, as we think about this new heavens and this new earth. In John, the 14th chapter, if you'll remember, Jesus gives a very beautiful teaching. He's already said, let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now let's look at verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. The idea there is much room to dwell So in my Father's dwelling place, that new heaven, that new earth, in my Father's dwelling place, there's much room. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now note this, He's standing on the earth, talking to His apostles when He says this. This is important to understand the whole setting. I go 
I go to prepare a place for you. And we know that he meant the ascension because that's what came shortly after his resurrection. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Now that makes perfect sense when we see that right now while we're on this earth, he has prepared or is either still preparing a place for us. There's no way it's the earth that we're living on because He's going to prepare that place before He comes again. When He comes again, that place is ready. It's not that when He comes again, He's going to set up a new kingdom on the earth. It's not that He's going to modify the earth and make it a Garden of Eden type of setting. This will be melted. This will be dissolved because He will have already prepared for us a new place. And finally, question number nine, and that is, will the saved live among the angels? We can only know what the Scriptures tell. We don't know a lot of details about this, but we do know as we read again what we read quite a bit out of two weeks ago in Luke the 16th chapter. In verse 22, so it was that the beggar died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. So we know that as Christians die, their welcoming, if you will, their escorts, if you will, Begin with the angels. What a beautiful, beautiful thought to think that heavenly beings are greeting our soul as it leaves this this physical body, as it leaves this earth. Now, one other insight that we could mention is Revelation, the seventh chapter, where we see, and and granted, a lot of Revelation is written in, in symbolism, but it seems that this particular scene... Probably is not symbolic, uh, but you can study it over yourself and see what your conclusion is. I'm going to pick up in the middle of a paragraph and notice 10, 11, and 12. We have this scene of heaven and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And as you read on, there's someone else around that throne. And in verse verse 14, you find out that it was the ones that went through great tribulation on this earth. So in other words, in this scene that we're given in Revelation of heaven, we see angels in the presence of the Lord and we see what were human beings on the earth that are now souls in the heavenly realm, also in the presence of the Lord, surrounded by these angels. So yes, we do see that gathering, if you will, of souls as well as celestial beings. I'd like for us to close this lesson with a reminder of a passage that you and I have already read quite a bit out of tonight. It's that passage where we began in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. You remember he talks about those that die in the Lord and he talks about us being called up and and being with the Lord forever. I want to remind you of how that paragraph started. That paragraph started by him saying in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. In other words, there's a lot of things about death that the Lord says, I want you to know them because it just might make a difference the way you live. That's true, isn't it? If we know about the beauty of heaven, it's going to make me take living on this earth as a Christian a lot more serious. I'm going to be a lot more dedicated. I'm going to be willing to make a lot more sacrifices. But then he closes this paragraph by saying, Therefore, comfort one another with these words.
Tonight, I want to ask you, when you think about death and the life after, is it comforting to you? That's what it's supposed to be for Christians. It's supposed to be a comfort to think about death, to think about life with God for an eternity. I want to beg you tonight, if you can't feel comfortable with that, if you can't be comforted with the thought of eternity, please make changes in your life tonight. The Lord is not dangling the idea of eternity out in front of us to make us miserable. He's holding it out in front. It's real. It's as real as you and I are right now. And He's holding it out in front of us to say, look at it. Look forward to it. Look how good it's going to be. Don't miss this. Don't be ignorant about it. And find comfort in it. It's going to be wonderful. Friends, it's going to be a day, that day of judgment, that you and I will not want to miss. We won't miss it. But we won't want to miss it. If we're right with God, it'll be the greatest time of our existence. If you've never been baptized into Christ for admission of your sins, won't you begin that journey tonight of, of moving from the world and being transformed into Christ? Or if you have been baptized into Christ, but yet you've lost your way and the idea of death is not comforting to you. The idea of death scares you. Don't let it. Make the changes in your life so that it becomes a wonderful anticipation.